Hey everyone, welcome. This is episode 172 of the Juice Box Podcast. Today's episode is sponsored by Dexcom, makers of the G6 Continuous Glucose Monitor, and Omnipod, the tubeless insulin pump that Arden has been using for a decade. In today's episode, we're going to be speaking with John. John was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes as an adult when he was an airline pilot. This, of course, meant that he lost his job and had to find different work. We're going to talk to John about living with type 1 diabetes, about losing his job, but moreover, about what he's trying to do to get that job back. When you finish listening to today's episode, if you're moved to try to get an Omnipod demo, you can go to myomnipod.com forward slash juicebox or click on the links in your show notes or at juiceboxpodcast.com. Or maybe you'll be interested in finding out more about the Dexcom G6 Continuous Glucose Monitor. In that case, you want to go to dexcom.com forward slash juicebox or again, the links in your show notes or at juiceboxpodcast.com. Hey, as a little bonus special treat today, I'm going to put a link in the show notes, or you can go to ardensday.com to my blog to see this. But there's a koala bear named Quincy at the San Diego Zoo, and he's wearing a Dexcom G6 continuous glucose monitor. It's uh, pretty amazing. I have a video on my blog of Quincy having his blood sugar checked, having his Dexcom put on, uh, and him getting insulin, which all was really very interesting. It's a short little three-minute video produced by the San Diego Zoo. It's incredibly interesting, so look for the links for that. Please remember that nothing you hear on the Juice Box podcast should be considered advice, medical or otherwise, and always consult a physician before making changes to your healthcare plan. I really appreciate you doing this, and I'm glad we were able to slide the time to make it a little better for you. So thanks so much. Oh yeah, yeah, I appreciate you moving that time. I um, my work schedule, I you know have various shifts out at the training department, and I just happened to uh, get assigned one that starts at um, 7 p.m. and goes until 2:30 a.m. last night. So that was enjoyable. <laughs> Do you always work overnight? Um, no, um, basically the way our training department works, since uh, you know where I work for an airline. Um, and I'm in our flight training department. Um, we have flight simulators that basically run 20 hours a day. Yeah. And so the instructors, you know, have to, uh, uh, basically work around, uh, four hour, um, shifts in there. So long story short, um, they just kind of cycle through, you know, sometimes I'll get the nice shifts that are like eight to noon. And, you know, other times I'll get the really late night ones because, uh, we have so many pilots that have to, you know, go through either new training or recurrent training that they just have to run those things nonstop. So um, when I do that particular type of instruction, uh, you just have to go with what they assign you. <laughs> you know, I just, uh, I get, I, I made me wonder, like, do you ever see anything in those simulations that make you think, oh, I'm not getting on a plane? <laughs> um, you know, occasionally, and uh, you know, before. Um, of course the, you know, subject that we're going to be talking about to today when I was on the other side of it, I, the student or the pilot that was in there for recurrent training, mm -hmm. um, you know, it was a little bit different perspective, but now I'm the one, um, you know, causing the problems instead of having to deal with them. <laughs> so it's a little bit more entertaining from my point of view now. Excellent. So listen, every once in a while I'm getting like a thumping or something is your, are you on an, a laptop or a phone, which um let's see here no i'm i'm going through my computer right now so uh, let me see if i can make sure there's not anything weird going on outside the door here also so. your your cell phone if you if you have a cell phone with you move it away from the computer uh, that that definitely helps sometimes yes i can absolutely do that so i'll set that on the other side of the room and maybe that'll help cool. so. all right yeah, my brother works uh shift work because he does something where they're running basically 24 hours a day too. And, okay. And it just, you know, it's, it's funny. He's, he doesn't mind it once he's doing it, but he says that the switching back and forth from different shifts is, is really hard. Um, you know, he's like, he's like, once you're in it for a day or two, it's not such a big deal, but, but he's like this, the swap from like a day to a night or something like that. He's, he, he finds difficult, but, uh, yeah. 
definitely. Well, yeah, it's it's one of those deals where I try and stay away from that really late one because I'm a little bit more of a morning person, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, given the opportunity, I let our schedulers know that I'd rather have the one because we do have a one that starts at 4 a.m. and then goes until like noon. Okay. So I'd actually prefer that one over the really late night one because you know, like for example, you know, even when I have multiple night shifts, you know, I'm one of those people that you know, I, I'll wake up at eight o'clock in the morning without an alarm clock just because that's the way I am. Right. So get into <laughs> so, four and have your day when you're done. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so, so, so John, we don't really start in a real formal way or anything. Just, you know, introduce yourself any way you want to be known and, and we'll start talking and it'll find its path. You'll see. My name's John Roth. Um, was diagnosed with uh, type 1 diabetes fairly late in life, age 36. So I'm just coming up on having it for three full years now. Um, and a very active person, do a lot of outdoor activities and mountain bike racing and so on. So uh, basically this diagnosis came as a, a pretty big shock to me. Um, also the ramifications on my said chosen career. So um, currently I work for an airline as a uh, uh, instructor. Um, however, prior to that, I was a uh, you know full-time airline pilot um, and I've had to make some pretty significant life changes um, as a result of the type 1 diabetes diagnosis. Wow. So you, what, what, how long have you been flying? Your whole life or? Um, yes. So uh, basically I started flying um, when I was 16. Um, just started off um, basically in the summer um, had an interest in flying um, prior to that. You know, I was kind of into remote control airplanes and that type of stuff when I was uh, when I was a kid. And over the summer, my dad kind of uh, said, "Well, you know, might as well give it a shot and try the real thing and see if there's anything to this." And uh, started flying you know, small private airplanes when I was 16, and then actually had to wait until I was 17 to take my first, uh, I guess, level of pilot certification, um, and then I've been flying since then. And uh, after I got done with high school, um, I went to Ohio State University uh, through their uh, collegiate flight program um, and continued my training there and then uh, kind of progressed after college. So yeah, um, so I've been in it, in it for a little over 20 years. <laughs> I really believe that has to be something you just love. Like it just has to make sense to you when you look at it because there are You know, there are people like me who, if you said to me, hey, there's a possibility you could get in this mechanical thing and go up in the air and you'd be in control of it. I'd be like, I, there doesn't seem to be any good reason for me to do that. And and, (laughs) that sounds like a a horrible idea. And, and yet there are certain people, you know, I guess we're lucky there are who look at that and think I can do that. That's amazing. And, and, and to have that feeling when you're so young is, is kind of special because I don't know. You just, you know, at 16, how often do you find something you love at 16? You can still love when you're 40, you, you know, like that's right. Yeah. That's, that's, that's definitely special. When I think of an airline pilot, you were an airline pilot before your diabetes, you were flying like yep. passenger jets and all kinds of things like that. Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, yeah, I, uh, currently work for, um, a, what's called a regional airline. So we fly for, um, our aircraft are painted for the various air carriers that we work for. And we fly everything from 50 seat jets up to our largest one, um, is 76 passengers. Okay. And we fly for, um, basically all the, the major airlines now, as far as United Delta American and, uh, Alaska airlines. Um, so, uh, yeah. So when you're diagnosed at 36, that's a, you know, listen, I think being diagnosed at any age is a real shock, but I think that living, I, I don't know how other people think about it, but I used to, I used to have this feeling like when I was younger, I thought like, if I could just make it out of high school, like I made it out of high school, that's right. great. you know, and then you're like in your twenties, you're like, okay, well, if I don't get hit by a car, right? Like maybe that's cool. And then in your thirties, you start thinking, oh, if I don't get cancer, then, you know, when you get to 40, you're like, I did it. Like, I know that's an unreasonable feeling, but you're like, I've been alive for a while now. Nothing really terrible has happened. I've won some sort of a, you know, a game that's not really existing. Like, I, I know that's ridiculous, but I used to think like that. Like, I saw, sure. I saw my life in stages. Like, if I get past this, this won't happen anymore. If I get past this, this won't happen anymore. Every time somebody I know gets divorced, I think, ooh, that 
that makes my odds better for not getting divorced because we all can't get divorced. And, and you know, right. like, and I have those unreasonable thoughts pretty constantly. So, um, at 36, you have to, and you're, you're like, you, you describe yourself as healthy, outgoing, you know, active, that, that kind of thing. How, right. how does it hit you to be diagnosed with something so life altering at that age? And how much of that, of your age do you think had to do with how you felt about it? Um, you know, I definitely think that, you know, the, yeah, the age probably, um, gave me a little bit more ability to, I guess, appreciate all the things I still had or still had going for me. You know, it was one of those things where, you know, because I, you know, enjoy an active lifestyle and, and, you know, you know, have, um, have a great wife and, you know, have, you know, a lot of things to be thankful for in my life. I could, at least look at those and say, well, I still have all of that, you know, and how is this diagnosis going to affect, um, those things. And the, the big ticket items, if you want to think of it that way, you know, in life that, you know, type one diabetes hasn't, you know, I guess significantly, you know, adversely affected those things, Mm -hmm. you know, however, it just so happens that I'm in one of probably a very, very few selected, um, you know, professional careers that is directly affected by the disease, right. you know? So it was like, okay, you know, I'm sitting there and, you know, I kind of tell people the story when I went in for my, uh, or when I went in, when I was finally diagnosed, you know, I'm sitting there in a, you know, in a bed in the ICU, you know, looking at the FAA website, you know, at, uh, you know, this particular factor of, you know, um, how it's going to, how, how it would affect my medical cert- certification to fly and it's like right there in big bold face letters, you know, insulin dependent diabetes is a disqualifying event for all uh, medical certification. So, how long had you been fi- flying professionally at that point? Um, so, let's see. At that point, I had been flying ten years with uh, commercial airlines, so passenger service, and then before that, I flew two years as an um, air cargo pilot. So, so not only something you love, but it's the way you make your living, and Oh yeah. And then yeah. Just, just like that, like a snap of the fingers, you just couldn't fly a plane anymore. Exactly. Wow. Yeah. So, you know, 20 years of effort and, you know, a sidebar to that, um, at this airline, um, I had just received notification that, you know, the next week I was, I literally had my bags packed to go to upgrade class as a captain. So, you know, yeah. So again, all that work and you're about ready to kind of take that final step that you've been working at your whole life. And then this happens. Correct. Any diabetes in your family? Was it shocking? Uh, or or do, do, when you look back now, do you think, oh, wow, this guy's has it, my uncle has it, it's not that crazy? Um, no, I, you know, I, I, of course, after, you know, um, all this happened and, you know, when you're in the hospital, of course, they ask, you know, that same question. And, um, you know, no one, well, no one that I know of or that my uh, parents know of in our family had type 1. Um, my mother or my grandmother on my mother's side, I should say, um, had type two. Um, but, uh, other than that, there was a uh, very little prevalence of type one. There were a few other folks that did have some, um, uh, you know, various, um, uh, you know, coronary artery disease. There's a bit of that. Um, and then there's also a few folks that did have some other, um, you know, immune type diseases, but nothing, nothing of great significance. Hmm. Yeah. Gotcha. So it was kind of odd. <laughs> uh, well, you know, it sucks. It really does. I mean, it, I know it doesn't, it's sort of meaningless whether you had a background in it or not, but it, there's, you know, maybe you'd been living your whole life thinking, oh, it might happen to me or like something to soften the blow a little bit, but, but, but no. So, so tell me something when that immediately happens, does the company, look for other ways to keep you employed or are you just, are you scampering for a job or what, what happened to you after, as far as your work goes? Right. So, um, you know, at the time, you know, I, I do feel fortunate and that's one of the reasons why I actually transitioned to the, uh, company that I currently work for is because, you know, they have a really good reputation as, as far as, you know, supporting their employees, which is unfortunately becoming more and more of a rarity. Um, and, uh, you know, basically the, what happened there initially is that, um, 
you know, we do have, you know, as I said before, I have a lot of things to be thankful for. You know, I had short-term disability. So at that point, you'd basically just have to call and, you know, let, you know, the media upline person for me would be our chief pilot and let him know that I'm currently out on a medical leave. So they put you on on a medical leave. And then um, after that, you know, when it became apparent that, you know, there was in fact, you know, no way for me to return to flying currently, uh, you know, they then said, okay, well, you're on, you know, disability right now, you know, um, we'll, of course, keep you on as a employee until that runs its course. Well, you have time to try and figure out this medical issue. And then in that time frame, you know, I then, you know, once I got out of the hospital and had, you know, at least a, a few weeks, I'm not the type of person that likes to sit around. So, you know, I had a few weeks to try and start understanding more about the disease. I then started to look at the company for other, um, I guess, positions that I could take. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's kind of what led me to the, um, the the training department because, I, of course, I knew a lot of people at the company. And they say, hey, you know, we, we do have this position open. You should go and interview with these folks and, uh, and uh, try and go through that process because, you know, they felt like I would be a, a good instructor pilot based upon my experience. The Omnipod is a two-part insulin management system. The first part, the pod. The pod is a small device that you fill with insulin and wear directly on your body. It includes a small, flexible cannula that inserts automatically with just the push of a button. And then the pod communicates wirelessly with the personal diabetes manager. And that's how you program your insulin. You tell it, hey, give me a unit. I'm eating 20 carbs, that kind of stuff. Now, the second part of the system is the PDM, the Personal Diabetes Manager. That wirelessly manages your insulin delivery based on your settings. So try to imagine you have this tiny little thing that you wear, it has your insulin in it, and there's this thing you hold that every once in a while you have to pick up and tell it, hey, I just ate something, or turn up my basal rate, or something like that. Now, in this moment, in June of 2018, the PDM is the same PDM the company's been using for a while. But Insulin, the company that makes Omnipod, they just received clearance from the FDA to start marketing their new PDM, which is really cool. It's sleek and touchscreen, exactly what you expect in a cell phone age. So it's going to look like a little Android phone almost, but do all the same things. Incredibly cool. It's actually the first time in the history of Omnipod that the PDM matches the futuristic nature of the pump itself. It used to be sort of this thing, got a little rubber buttons on it and stuff like that. Like a, you imagine a medical device, but no more. Now we're living in the future, baby. I want you to go to myomnipod.com forward slash juice box or click on the links in your show notes or juiceboxpodcast.com. And when you do that, you're going to be able to get a free, no obligation demo pod sent right to your house. You'll be able to wear it to see what I'm talking about, and then decide if it's something you want to move forward with. When it is, you tell Omnipod, hey, I want to get this, and they'll help you the rest of the way. It's really very simple. MyOmnipod.com forward slash juice box. Do you find it satisfying? And I mean, I'm, I'm assuming you miss the flying, but do do you at least find the new work satisfying? Um, I do. Um, it's definitely something that um, you know I enjoy. Um, and you know, as we kind of touched upon before, you know, it's sort of one of those things where you get to this point in life, and it be, because I enjoy flying, you know, so much that it would be hard for me to kind of imagine a. a I guess a career track that would just completely not, or, you know, go away from aviation. So this does, you know, still keep me into things. And, you know, the, even the, the flight simulators that I instruct in, you know, are called level D simulators. So they're basically one notch below actually being in the airplane. So I definitely do find it, uh, um, you know, satisfying. And, and, uh, as I was gaining flight experience, you know, going up through the, the ranks, so to speak, when I was in college and so on, I was a flight instructor, uh, for a while, you know, before getting into commercial flying. And, you know, I, I do enjoy the uh, instruction side side of it, but it's, you know, one of those things where, 
you know, when I go up and do observation flights or, you know, check flights or things like that, um, you know, I tell people, you know, I, I, I don't look up in, in the sky and see an airplane fly over that, you know, I wouldn't prefer to be there, you know? Yeah, no, I, I definitely think I understand that for sure. Okay. Um, so it's funny because in, when the, when the disability first kicks in and they use all the language they usually use, when sure. you're talking to people like, you know what, well, you get this figured out. You're like, figured out. I'm not getting rid of diabetes. So there's, there's no figuring yeah. it. There's no figuring it out. But what, what did, so you're three years into 2000, were you diagnosed about 2014? Yeah. So this coming January will be three years. Okay. So, and, and yeah. so, so in that moment when you're diagnosed and you have insurance and all this stuff's going on, do they start talking to you about insulin pumps? Do you look into insulin pumps? Do you not have an insulin pump? Like what, what is the technology that you're using right now? Right. So, um, you know, listening to your show and others, you know, I have, you know, it's kind of, I don't know. I think it's probably a bad thing, but um, there is some comedy to be found out basically how similar people's experiences at the hospital, you know, although the hospital has the best of intentions, they literally, you know, get you stabilized in the ICU um, and then kind of kick you out the door with a couple vials of, you know, Lantus and, you know, Novolog and some syringes and say, all right, you know, we'll see you in a week with the CDE and, you know, hopefully you don't kill yourself with this stuff in the meantime. Exactly. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, you know, that's, you know, being sort of facetious, but, no, but whatever. It's, it's really, it is. It's, it's a little bit of like, Hey, this does this. Here's this, right. for, here's this mathematical formula, which we all know after you have diabetes for a while, it's pretty useless. And then they're, you know, like, right. good luck. Yeah. You know, like, yeah, it's completely preposterous. You're like, are you are you kidding me? Yeah. <laughs> so no more explanation, right? I'm just leaving now. Um, yeah, but go ahead. Oh well, yeah. So as far as you know, when I did leave the uh, hospital, um, you know, very uh, you know little, um, I guess explanation of, uh, of or rather mention of additional um, uh, products or technology or or what have you, you know, it was literally like, you know, Hey, you know, stop by Walgreens on your way home and get one of those blood glucose monitor things. I'm like, oh, okay. And, uh, but, um, as far as that goes, um, I'm, you know, and that's kind of what led me to send you that initial email. You know, I'm still, you know, utilizing uh, MDI, right. uh, for my, for my control. Um, and, uh, and I'm still continuing to use that. So I use, you know, pens, uh, currently use, you know, Lantus and, um, Hemolog, and then I actually use Novolin R um, for uh, a lot of times for mealtime bolus. Okay, so, and, and yeah. you're happy with how things are going because your A1C is pretty great, right? Yeah, um, I mean, uh, for the last basically two years consistently, um, I think my highest A1C was 5.8, and I'm currently at 5.1. That's so. amazing. So, so how do you? So th this is. Do you have a, a glucose monitor? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, luckily, that was something that I would let's see. I believe it was my second visit with the endocrinologist where she had mentioned uh, the Dexcom. Mm -hmm. um, at that time, they were still on the uh, G4 system. Right. And um, uh, she mentioned that to me. And, you know, being of kind of a technical background and someone who you know, is, you know, assesses data and likes to mitigate, I guess, as we call the industry, mitigate threat. I, I saw that and I'm like, yes, I want that right now. You know, See, it's, it's, so. it's interesting because I think your mind must work a certain way to be a pilot because, you know, when, when a lot of people reach out to be on the podcast, usually what I'll tell them privately is, hey, look, it's just going to be a conversation. It'll find its own way. You know, I'm not going to give you topics or anything, but you asked me two separate times while we were emailing. What, what are we going to be talking about? And I could tell, I was like, oh, because he really is uncomfortable not knowing what he's getting into before he gets into it. I'm sorry I left you in that space knowing. No, what, no. But, but, but at the same time, it makes sense that you have an A1C that is that low because your, your brain must just think about these numbers in the right way, like in a way that you can make sense of and, and, and make adjustments to. But that's still very impressive uh, with shots. Are you... Do you have like crazy lows or, or, or are you pretty steady? Cause I mean, an A1C of five, one has got to be what an average I'm guessing, but that's gotta be an average blood sugar in the mid eighties. Maybe. I think on average, I ride right around between 80 and 100 because, um, you know, as I started to do more, um, 
I guess, research and learning more about, you know, just the disease and not just the disease, but what, what is normal, you know, I'm kind of one of those people where, you know, you find out clinically normal blood glucose is kind of defined between uh, 77 to 99, you know, for fasting blood glucose. And so, you know, I looked at that and said, well, that's normal. And that's what is going to give you your best opportunity to, you know, again, avoid or, you know, mitigate the risk of having long-term diabetic complications. So, I'm not satisfied making 140 my goal. I want to make normal my goal because that gives you your best uh, chance at long-term health. What would you and, say, what would you say is oh, the the main focus of how you can accomplish that? Do you restrict diet, or do you just think you have a really good uh, grasp of how the insulin works, or is it a, a mixture? Well, I think it's a combination of both. And you know, folks that I that I have talked to, and you know, I have you know met with a few other folks that have. Um, you know, type one and, and even type two, you know, it's a combination of, you know, understanding the insulin, just like, you know, you are very, um, uh, very adamant about and understanding what it does for you, you know, because as you said, a lot of those calculations that you get, um, initially from even a best intending, you know, endocrinologist or CDE are, I guess, starting points and you have to figure out how does this affect me mm-hmm. and, um, becoming comfortable with that so that you can just like you say, you know, be aggressive with insulin and, you know, correct when you need to. Uh, and, uh, the other facet of that, that I've found that I'm a firm believer in is that, you know, making, um, dietary changes that are going to, I guess, set you up for success, so to speak. Are there things you cut out or were you always, um, eating like the, like this, or are there things that you looked at one day and were just like this, I can't make this work. So it's gone or. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, uh, absolutely. So prior to my diagnosis, um, you know, being a pretty active person and, you know, um, a mountain bike racer and, you know, someone who does a lot of activities, you know, I, I had, I I ate where my wife and I, you know, I've always eaten healthy because I also have a background in, um, uh, sports physiology and, uh, and nutrition. Mm -hmm. And so at the time, you know, we were eating, you know, you know, fairly healthy and, you know, well-balanced diet and, you know, stayed away a lot uh, away from a lot of processed foods, but, you know, we still ate, uh, you know, more sugary type stuff, particularly when we were exercising and, you know, because of the level of exercise, we could get away with a lot more because we were burning so many calories, but, um, at, you know, with the diagnosis, I then had to start looking at, okay, well, what causes a blood glucose, uh, you know, spike or insulin, um, you know, requirement. So you start looking at, you know, of course, sugar and carbohydrates. And so the process of that was basically, you know, I started off with, um, kind of removing all of those really simple sugars and, you know, um, uh, you know, treats if you want to think of it that way i was kind of notorious on you know around my friends for having you know a big you know hankering for uh muddy buddies i don't know if you know what those are I don't. they're like they're checks mix that are covered in like you know powdered sugar and chocolate <laughs> <laughs> you don't you don't so, eat those anymore <laughs> no those had to go right out the window those are gone immediately so do you, um, do you, ever, um, do you ever find yourself thinking ah oh, muddy buddies I, yeah, I mean, it's more like I have that thought, but it's the, it's more of an, a, in a comedic sense, like, holy crap, I used to, you know, take down a bag of those things and not even think twice about it, you know, right, right. <laughs> so, which was, of course, would be preposterous now, you know, I don't even, you know, I don't even know what that would do to me now. <laughs> well, <laughs> so. If you poured insulin over your head, you'd probably be okay. Uh, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I know. Um, it's funny when you, you think about like health and the way people look versus how they, how healthy they actually are. I use as an example, sometimes when I was growing sure. up, my parents had these friends and the husband of, of the, of the, of the other couple was just this very tall in shape, lean guy. And, uh, he died before any of them, you know, just, you know, but because, because he'd be like, he'd be like one of those guys, like you'd order pizza, he eat a whole pizza himself. He wouldn't gain a pound. And somehow, you know, in 1979, that translated into he must be the lucky guy who's just healthy. You, you know, and no one thought about it past that. So, um, anyway, he's he's long gone now because he had a heart attack before he was 50 years old. And uh, well, yeah, yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting, you know, thing to to, to a story rather to bring up because you know, sort of getting back to the 
dietary and health changes, you know, it's, um, as I started to, you know, I guess use some of the studying techniques and kind of looking back at, you know, things I learned in college, you know, it's that idea where, you know, and I kind of consult folks now with, um, you know, non-diabetics as well, as far as, um, you know, attaining a healthy lifestyle, you know, mainly through, uh, nutrition, you know, there is that idea where I think in today's society, and this has been kind of propagated, you know, from probably the eighties and so on, and has been probably increased or made more of an issue with media that a lot of people equate, uh, I guess, body weight or body composition with health, you know, they think, Oh, well, they're thin and fit and, you know, they, they do all this stuff, but, from a health standpoint, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're a healthy person, you know, like they could just like that guy, you know, and I I have some other examples of similar type stuff where they look very healthy, but you pull their blood work and, and it's just, it's a train wreck. Yeah. It's just funny how, how it just sometimes doesn't correlate at all. And, you know, and and you would, but it is our, it is kind of the way we're built. Like our, our brains are built. Like you just look, if you don't look, it's such an odd thing, right? Because quote unquote, if you don't look unhealthy, you must not be unhealthy and vice versa. And so it is really interesting. I just thought of that because I, what you're describing eating that Chex Mix covered in chocolate. Like I I know for my body, if I had even a reasonable amount of that, I'd wake up the next day, three pounds heavier. Like I just, I wouldn't be able to avoid it. So (laughs) it's just, it's, it, it's just, you know, different people, but, but so you just completely cut these things away. So did you, always think of yourself as somebody with a good constitution for things like that? Or is that something you developed for diabetes? So I'm supposed to be telling you about the Dexcom G6 continuous glucose monitor, but all I can think about is the video I saw this morning of Quincy the koala bear at the San Diego Zoo wearing a Dexcom G6 continuous glucose monitor. The video is really cool. You can see Quincy getting his blood sugar checked, wearing the Dexcom G6, getting insulin. It's really kind of captivating to watch. I hope you go back to the blog later and check it out. But that's not really what this time is for. This time, which now is less than when I started, is to talk about the Dexcom G6 continuous glucose monitor. You hear us talking every day on this podcast about the great things that come from wearing a continuous glucose monitor. Being able to see your blood sugar rise and fall, to know how fast that's happening, to be able to make great decisions about temp basal rates and pre-bolusing, all the things that you hear me talking about here. That information that I get from the Dexcom allows all of that to happen. If you're someone who needs to know what someone else's blood sugar is, the Dexcom features a share and follow app. So one person has the share app, the person who has diabetes, and one person has the follow app, the person who's following along. You can do this with an Apple or Android phone. It's really spectacular. It's how I learned to let go and allow my daughter to do all kinds of things in the world that I couldn't previously imagine her doing really is a life-changing device. So between the really cute koala bear and everything else, I really hope you go to Dexcom.com forward slash juice box to learn more about the Dexcom continuous glucose monitor. I genuinely think you'll be happy that you did. Did you always think of yourself as somebody with a good constitution for things like that? Or is that something you developed for diabetes? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I've always been one of those people that once I see, uh, I guess really positive either information or, you know, undeniable, I guess, science, if you want to think of it that way to show that it's a positive thing. And I kind of set my mind to it. Um, I'm, I'm able to, I guess you either make those changes or to kind of follow that track, you know, and, and stick with it. So, you know, I guess as that applied to diabetes, you know, once I started to figure out, well, here's what causes the most amount of, I guess, um, stress or, uh, frustration for particularly type one diabetics. Well, if I can work on, um, and you know, it's a process. It wasn't like, you know, one day it's just all gone, but it was a, a, you know, process over probably a year to kind of get where I'm at now dietarily, you know, I, I, I was able to say, well, you know, those are the things that seem to cause the most amount of issues. So if I can remove those things, you know, that will give me again, you know, better control of, of the disease and therefore, you know, give me the best, 
uh, potential for long-term health. And that, that was my big goal to say, you know, all the research and, you know, folks that have, that have diabetes for long periods of time, type ones, you know, the, I guess, fear, I think that a lot of people have is, you know, not so much diabetes, but the, um, long-term consequence of uncontrolled, you know, diabetes and, you know, just talking with physicians and, and folks that have been, you know, involved with it for long periods of time, you know, they, you know, a couple in particular said, you know, these are not, you know, a, uh, you know, a, a definitive thing that's going to happen. You know, it, it's, it's preventable provided, you know, you can get good control of the disease because you know, I think a common phrase is that diabetes never killed anybody. It's usually the complications from poorly controlled diabetes that causes the problems. Yeah, you you think of you know DKA for example as something that does happen to people, and and it's you, you just it, it's something you can see in the moment. Like you can you can see like cause and effect. Like I did not take enough insulin, my insulin pump got knocked off. Something happened, my blood sugar rose. I went to DKA. This happened. And they, uh, they I got out of it. I got better. I died. Like you know that. But it, you don't often think I had Chex Mix on Thursday in November in 2017 and in 2034 this happens to me you don't think you know think about it that way and and um but but you do because it hit you that way and you were able to like make that decision plus you're probably at the right spot in your life right 36 you'd had a lot of that you'd had a lot of that Chex Mix by now right there's sure. because there's things now I'm 46 and there are things now that I, you know, I'm like, oh, that would be good. But yeah, like you kind of like, you know, it's not worth it. Or I know that'll make my stomach hurt or, you know, blah, blah, whatever it ends up, you start feeling you just, and you're able to pass it by. Maybe yeah. it's just because you've had it so many times it's, or maybe it's because yeah. you've got the time, you know, you got the time into life where you really understand things a little, a little firmer. And, you know, and it's not, it's not like I'm, it's not like you're you're seven, and I've got to explain to you how you can't have this, or you know, it would be better if you didn't have this, or whatever. Um, right. I know that the one time Arden stopped eating something, it, it, it was her idea, and and it you know I, I I talked about it a couple of times here, but she just she heard the doctor talking about A one C, and we were discussing how to maybe get it to move, and she just we went out to the car, and she's like, how what could I do to make my A one C go down? And I, I remember telling her back then, I was like, you could stop eating cereal for breakfast. I was like, that would make things so much easier for me to figure out. That would be huge. Yeah, yeah. And it wasn't, it's funny because I couldn't figure it out. I, now I can bowl for a bowl of cereal like it's nothing. But back sure. then, back then I just could not figure it out. And so I just figured if you could just remove that from the, the, the larger equation, maybe I could focus on some of this other stuff and figure out some of this other stuff. And it's, um, right. but you really seem to have, so, so tell me a little bit about like in the course of a day, do you eat like how how many carbs do you think you take in a day? How and or is it? Sure. Yeah, I'm interested. Um, yeah, so you know, I'd I'd say definitely in the last you know year and a half, I became more focused on, um, you know, transitioning my body over to becoming more, um. Well, yeah, I guess, well, the term is fat adapted so that it, it, it processes fat more efficiently, both, you know, as, you know, body fat and then dietary fat. So, um, I would say in a given day, you know, um, depending on my activity level, you know, big day at work where I'm doing double shifts, I'm just going to be, you know, at work for 14 hours. You know, I, I probably only take in about 30 grams of carbohydrates the entire day. Um, and then other times when I'm out doing, you know, big mountain bike, you know, races or rides and where I'm burning two or 3000 calories at a shot, you know, I might take in 80 grams of carbohydrates. Okay. So, um, very, very low carb. What do you eat besides carbs and like, what are you taking in to keep you going? Well, yeah. So, um, you know, moderate protein, you know, probably, um, I mean, you know, from a sidebar on that, you know, approximately one gram of, uh, protein per kilogram. So, you know, I'm, I'm 170 pounds, so probably about 70 grams of protein. And then the rest of it, um, is, you know, healthy, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, dietary fats. So, you know, because fat has very little, uh, necessity for, you know, coverage by, by insulin, mm-hmm. um, you know, regardless of whether or not you're a diabetic or not, 
Um, it just requires very little insulin to process, you know, provided your body has become adapted to being able to um, metabolize it, you know, efficiently, particularly for um, activities. You know, if you're you know, not a, you know, overly active person, it's not quite as challenging, but, you know, if you're highly active, you kind of have to work up to that or, you know, kind of retrain your body to be efficient with that. But otherwise you were, you would experience a bunch of lows and, and sure. Yeah. 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 So, you know, like with getting back to the Dexcom, you know, on their, on their dashboard, you know, it shows your time within range, you know, and, mm-hmm. and, you know, I only have, you know, like a 1.2% um, of the time that I've gone low out of range, you know, and my, my range is between, you know, I modify it, you know, I'll put the low alert, you know, and of course that's another big, you know, huge advantage of having, or rather understanding the technology is to say, well, when I'm out exercising, I put my low alert at 85. Mm -hmm. Whereas when I'm just, you know, doing normal daily things, I set it at, you know, 75 or 70, you know, so that way when I'm exercising, it gives me that alert earlier so I can just correct it and, and it's, you know, done with. And then, same thing with the high range, you know, like I have my high range on the Dexcom set to, you know, 135. And so I correct immediately if it even starts creeping up on that, on that level. Yeah. We, so. we, we correct at 130. Yeah. And any kind of diagonal up or, or up arrows, I just assume I've messed something up and, you know, more, sure. more insulin. Um, so you're not afraid to inject though. So you're an adult who has made that decision. Like if you, Make make a bolus for for a meal, and then you know forty five minutes later you're one thirty diagonal up. You're not you'll just pull your pen out again and give yourself more. Oh yeah, right. yeah, and you know again the education level, you know, and, and I guess you know from doing this, you know, podcast, you know, it, again just a huge fan on on, on my own accord, and I you know really uh, admire what what you're doing with the community is just to encourage folks to you know, educate themselves because, you know, it's a kind of a cliche phrase, but, you know, knowledge is power. So, and it removes a lot of that fear. So just like you said, if I, you know, maybe went over to, you know, a friend's house or, you know, ate out and there was something in there that I didn't know about and, you know, I bolus what I thought was correct. And then now it's like you said, diagonal arrow up and it's at 120, 125 and rising. Yeah. I, I don't hesitate to say, you know what? Here, here's another half unit of uh, Humalog, and let's you know, knock that down because I know exactly what that insulin is going to do, uh, or at least relatively close as best as you can with absorption and all that stuff. But I know that that's not going to harm me, you know, like by taking a half, an extra half unit, even if it's an intermuscular injection to really cut it down. Um, I know that that's not going to put me at a dangerous low because, you know, I know how my body responds to that and I know you know, I'm comfortable with my insulin dosing and that's very powerful, you know, and th- that gives you a lot of control over the disease. You just said something I'm not sure everybody would understand, but so if you put the insulin in the way you're supposed to just in, you know, the fat layer, it absorbs right. in one layer, but you can press a little harder, go into a muscle with it and you get more or quicker or more harsh reaction from the insulin. Can you describe that a little bit? Yes. Um, so, you know, as you said, usually either through an insulin pump or normal insulin injection, you kind of do it subcutaneously. So you're injecting the insulin into that little layer, you know, again, body specific, but that layer of fat between the surface of the skin and the muscle. Whereas um, if you inject, it's called IM or intramuscular, you're actually injecting the insulin into a muscle, which has a much higher blood flow to it. So that you're removing some of the media that the insulin has to go through. So you're putting it nearly directly into the bloodstream. So it, it acts more quickly. Um, and you have, you know, a, a more, uh, I guess, deliberate response. So it, it, you know, instead of maybe taking, you know, for like, uh, myself, you know, Humalog, like instead of taking 15 minutes to start working, like if I do an IM literally within five or 10 minutes, it, I start seeing a change in that, in that arrow on the Dexcom. That's interesting. Yeah. That's little things I don't think we think about too much. So, so John, in the, in the last kind of 20 minutes we have here, what I wanted to ask sure. you about is, um, is your flying. So, you know, the, this is taken from you, obviously not, yeah. not, not something you want. 
as you look back now, because you still run, do you ever fly the sim? Has you have you ever flown a simulation and had something happen because of your diabetes and thought, oh, well, I guess it's good. I don't have a license to, to fly a plane anymore. Or or have you thought, I think I could do this with Type One? Um, no, I've I've never had an instance you know, at work. You know, even you know, I teach classroom stuff. I you know, I do. I'm in the simulator. I you know, I do all the emergency scenarios, and um, I I can honestly say. I've never had an instance where I thought, you know, I would be either unsafe or incapable of performing the, you know, those duties. So, um, and that's kind of been the big direction. I, I currently hold in, in the uh, airline or rather or those who of course aren't familiar with how pilot certifications work um, as a private pilot. So if you're just going to go up and fly around on your own, you have your own airplane or you rent one, you know, small airplanes, um, that's, that requires what's called a third class medical. And I actually have been able to, uh, regain that that, uh, little level of certification so I can still fly private airplanes. Um, but the airline world requires a first class medical and that's where the disqualifying event is for insulin dependent diabetes. And, you know, it's one of those things when you look at the regulations, those regulations were kind of put on the books back in 1967. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, at that time, of course, it was a, you know, profoundly different uh, landscape for diabetes. You know, it was it was nowhere near the same. And it just hasn't really been looked at um, or advocated for um, until recently. And, um, you know, I, I firmly believe that if you know, a person is well-controlled um, and understands the disease, you know, whether through insulin pump and, you know, CGM use and or, and, or MDI, um, you know, that you can safely, you know, pr- perform those duties and, 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 you know, operate safely. Now, with that, you know, uh, you know, again, this isn't meant to be, uh, I guess, offensive, but, I also believe that if it's someone who maybe doesn't have as much understanding or is kind of still figuring out the control of the disease, um, I don't believe they should be in the flight deck because, you know, someone who potentially has or is not understanding maybe why they went up to 350 and then had to take a large amount of insulin. And then, you know, an hour later, they're at 50 and are taking those huge blood glucose swings. Um, I don't think that that would be safe in the flight deck. And the FAA actually has defined parameters for private pilots that say you have to keep your blood sugar within 100 and 300 while you're flying. Mm-hmm. Um, and those same recommendations that were actually derived from um, uh, uh, work with the ADA, American Diabetes Association, and a board of uh, endocrinologists um, with the FAA along with some other recommendations, you know, have been determined as safe levels. And what we're trying to do now is advocate so that they can then apply those parameters to first and second class medicals. So that would then allow me to start flying again. So do you think it's, there's a, a, a reasonable way to, to find the difference between a person who can keep their blood sugar in that stable range, that range and who can't like, how do you make that decision? Who's who? Well, yeah, it's a good question. Um, And that's sort of part of the debate. And actually, this particular subject matter has gone all the way up to the U.S. District Court of Appeals. And then it's actually very close to going to the U.S. Supreme Court um, and ruling on what the FAA should be using as a determining factor. And, you know, that's where the CGM comes in, because when I first started this advocacy with the FAA, the Federal Aviation Administration had no idea, or I wouldn't say they had no idea, but they were unaware of the um, uh, usefulness or the, um, uh, not really ability, but the, uh, what CGM could provide. And so, you know, they're trying to decide, you know, while you're flying, you know, you need to be able to show that you're in this range and they want to see CGM reports and, you know, utilizing the, um, uh, you know, A1C value and a official report from your treating endocrinologist to, you know, state that you're, you know, you have good understanding, you're able to, you know, monitor your blood glucose, you know how to use a, a blue blood glucose meter. And then, you know, part of the parameters for a pi- private pilot 
is that prior to takeoff, you have to do, you know, you have to be able to show a blood glucose reading, you know, above 100. And then you're required every hour to take a uh, finger stick and show that you're within range. And then you have to then show those records during that flight time to show that you were in compliance while you were flying. Okay. So, well, um, I mean, it's no joke. There's, I, it, it's one of those things you completely understand both sides of the argument. Like you, I, I have, no sure. doubt, I have no doubt you could fly an airplane and you're fine. And at the same time, if I'm flying on the airplane, I don't want to be the guy sitting in row seven. The one time you, your blood sugar plummets out of nowhere and it cut and it sneaks sure. up on you. Right. And so, Right. But then I get, as I sit here, I think I could also, you could have a heart attack while you're flying a plane. I mean, you could, there's a right. lot of things that could happen. Aren't there co-pilots? Like, yeah, absolutely. Right? So, <laughs> so, so what's the point? Listen, John, let me ask you another question. I met a guy maybe a dozen years ago now, and he was flying like the big, heavy, you know, planes for, for major airlines, you know, moving hundreds, right. moving hundreds of people across the country. And he sure. said... That the secret is, he could push a button, that plane would take off, and it would land on its own, and he could sit there and sleep through the whole thing if he wanted to. Is that true? <laughs> is that true? <laughs> um, it's, I guess it's a slight over, we don't quite have the easy button yet, okay. but, you know, um, it, you know, there, there are, there are a lot of, um, you know, the, the modern airplanes that we fly are, are very capable, you know, you do have, um, first officers, but, um, you know, it, it, it is something that, and we train for that all the time, you know, incapacitation, you know, of the other pilot and, you know, on a sidebar, you know, there's been, um, uh, more instances of, um, flight deck crews having coronary artery events than, you know, um, issues with diabetes because on a, uh, on another note, the international civil avionics association or avi um, aviation administration, mm -hmm. ICAO, um, which is all the other countries, including, um, you know, Air Canada and European and also Australia, they all allow uh, insulin dependent diabetics in the flight deck and all those countries. So everyone except the United States, not one of those countries has had one single report of incapacitation or um, inability to perform their duties because of a diabetic event. Yeah, imagine imagine if you made every pilot check their uh, their heart once an hour to make sure it was functioning. Like you're probably safer than than anybody because you're paying such close attention. Which is the point we make about people with diabetes all the time is that they're right. probably healthier than most people because they're so aware of their health. And right. and and to say that there's never been an incident like that's what I was that's what I was trying to get at. Which is what's the difference between your blood sugar and any number of other things that happen to other people. Like if there's a right. process in place to put thing to, to fix it, if that happens, then why is your blood sugar different than a heart attack as far as the, you know, the emergency, you know, steps that you have to take? It doesn't, it doesn't seem like sure. it makes any difference. Since, see, it almost feels arbitrary. Well, yeah. And that's sort of the, um, the, the point, you know, is, you know, the, you know, the way in commercial aviation, you know, there are what they call special issuance medicals where, you know, if you're not 100%, you know, in the normal range, so, so to speak, you know, there are certain conditions, some of which are cardiac conditions, and some of them are, you know, even just medications where you have to get what's called a special issuance medical certificate, where you have to show additional compliance to maintain that medical certificate. Mm -hmm which if, if we can move this forward for insulin-dependent diabetics, that's what I would have to get, a special issuance, meaning I would have to provide more documentation and have more frequent checks for compliance um, than someone who doesn't have the special. And, you know, so, and with that, you know, it's just a matter of saying, okay, you know, you have this condition, but as long as it's treatable and it's safe, you know, that shouldn't preclude or prevent you from, this particular, um, you know, this particular career track, you know, and, you know, as a whole, you know, as a increase to overall aviation safety, you know, the more and more, um, frequent or more prevalence of type two diabetes, you know, when you look at it from a pure, you know, statistical standpoint, um, just the amount of, active current airline pilots in the country, you know, well over a hundred thousand or 200,000 total pilots, um, 
in our country from a pure statistical standpoint, the, you know, the ability of even type two diabetes and then them becoming uh, insulin dependent potentially down the road, you know, you could decimate the population if you just say carte blanche, you know, you're, you're done, no more medicals for you. And, you know, that creates a whole nother issue. I mean, I assume I'm hearing what you're saying. Like, you feel like you could do this and it's not a problem. I, I feel like you're willing to, if they put other parameters in place, you're willing to follow them. But, and I, and I hear that, but do you really think they're necessary or is this just something you're willing to do to, to get back in the, in the seat? You mean, you know, establishing, you know, parameters and so on? Do I feel that's necessary? And the extra testing and the verifications and stuff like, do you really think that's necessary? Or, I mean, is it one of the situations where maybe it's not necessary for a person like you, but it might be necessary if we're going to, uh, generally speaking, if we're going to cover all the population of, of pilots? Sure. Um, I, I think definitely a um, uh, an increased amount of, I guess, testing or providing things like um, either CGM data or those blood glucose, you know, finger sticks while you're flying. Mm -hmm. I, I think that's reasonable because it has to be something that the controlling, you know, body, you know, can, can take to the public and say, here's what we do to make sure that these people are safe. So I have, I have no problem with that. Right. You know, the frustration now lies with the fact that they have these parameters that have been recommended, you know, by a profession or a, um, uh, medical professionals, and right now there hasn't been any movement on it simply because you know they just don't feel like it's you know um it, you know really all that important, but at the same time, yeah you know yeah, you know, and at the same time you know you're you're looking at you know um uh, you know I, I guess some folks would say well you know it's it's a form of discrimination, but I don't know if I go quite that far to say it it's just a I guess lack of of need of uh, of of action on 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 their part. So yeah, there's not enough people. Yeah. The, you don't have, you're not up to the squeaky turbine getting the grease yet. So you need right. you need. And so is that something? Is that some? So how much? Because we're we're winding up a little bit. But how much? Sure. How how involved are you in this? And 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 what is it you're trying to accomplish? And and at what point? I know I heard you say it's at one level in courts, and it could go right. higher. I mean, do you think it's something that's going to work out in your professional lifetime, or do you think it's a fight that's going to be fought for a long time? Well, it, it's it's been, I guess, in the background uh, has has been worked on for quite some time. You know, the American Diabetes Association, you know, has been heavily involved, and it's you know, speaking with all um, um, the you know various flight surgeons and so on. Um, I definitely think that it's, it's going to, um, it's going to change. It's just the, you know, the trajectory or what, what the time frame is, you know, mm -hmm. uh, luckily my current position, you know, being, you know, with the airline that I'm at gives me the ability to hopefully wait it out. Um, and, you know, hopefully, you know, be there, um, when, you know, when it changes. So I am very optimistic, um, about that and, um, so I think it will change. It's just, you know, with any large organization, you know, and compounded by the fact of being a government organization, you know, change is slow. Um, well, you know, what so. occurs to me as you're talking is that the understanding that the FDA had of CGM, for example, was not, right. not good until the people at Dexcom really stepped up their efforts to explain it to them. And sure. maybe what your, you know, maybe what your cause needs is a little bit of, of maybe help from, from an entity like that who already knows how to petition the government about things like that. Like maybe, maybe that is right. a bad idea to, to contact Dexcom and tell them what you're doing and say, you know, do you have the ability to help me explain to the FAA the things that we're trying to explain? Can you back it up with data? You know, like, is, is there something you could do? Because it really does... Yeah, there are. I think there are a couple of other, like you said in the beginning, there are very few, but there are a couple of other professions where they don't allow people with type one with insulin dependent diabetes to to perform. And although I can't think of all of them off the top of my head, um, yeah, you know, at some point, you know, the next year or two, you're using MDI now, but you could easily switch over to a an artificial pancreas probably in 2018 that might do a really fantastic job. You, you know what I mean? Sure. So, yeah. um. 
things are going to change is my point. Um, right. I don't know. Maybe, maybe that's something to consider is to try to loop somebody in who really knows the, knows the landscape in DC, you know? Yeah. You know, and it's, it's one of those things where, you know, more, more knowledge and more, um, you know, I guess education or, or, you know, folks that are aware of, uh, of the real, um, I guess the real capabilities of some of the technology and so on there would, would definitely be beneficial. So, yeah, I mean, the, the organization I'm currently working with is uh, Airline Pilots Association, which is the largest, uh, you know, union in, in the country for airline pilots. And, and it's something that they've been advocating for, you know, very heavily. And, you know, just for that reason that, you know, they, they just want the, the ability to, you know, so that this doesn't automatically become, you know, a career ending event, you know, as, as long as, you know, someone's willing to, to work at it, you know, and then, you know, extrapolate that even down towards, you know, um, you know, some of the, you know, JDRFs and, and you know, people I've you know, met with on that regard, you know, kids and so on, you know, I mean, you know, you take a kid that has this dream of being, you know, a pilot and they, they, they want to do it. And it just, it's a terrible thing to sit there and like say, well, you know, sorry, kid, you know, you got type one. So, you know, forget that. The psychological, you know? yeah, the psychological implications are, are bigger than what we're, we're, we're talking about today, but it's, you know, you get this incurable disease and at the same time, it's possible your lifelong dream is, you know, is thrown right in the garbage along with all the other feelings that you're having at the moment. And that's, you, yeah. know, you know, you need some you need something to look forward to while you're figuring out diabetes and, and your health and how to manage day to day and stay, you know, stay safe and stay healthy. Like you can't, you can't look up and have no light, you know? And, and like you said, it, yeah. it's, it's not a lot of people that it's affecting, but it's more than you think. And if type twos start using more and more insulin, it's going to be more and more people. So now I, I'm with you. I think it's a, I think it's a great cause. So, you know, I want to wish you a lot of luck, you know, making headway with it. I hope you keep in touch. I'd like to know, uh, I'd like to know where, where it leads and, and what you're able to figure out. But, um, you know, I know, uh, um, I was going to ask you, uh, when we're done, but I'll, I'm just going to ask you sure. now while we're talking. So, um, I, so I'm a, uh, I'm in Philadelphia right around, well, I'm outside of Philadelphia, New Jersey. And we oh, yeah. I grew, okay. up, grew up in Philly. My whole life we're baseball fans and everything. And we, you and I are recording this about a week after Roy Holiday's plane crashed in, uh, yep. and, and I was, it's just such a, how, how I, my question is, is how frequently do personal planes go down that we don't know about? Or is it not as frequent? As when it um, it, it, you know, a private aircraft, there, there's quite a few more accidents that you just don't hear about because it's sort of like a, you know, a car accident, you know, I mean, tons of car accidents. There's actually more deaths from car accidents than airplanes, obviously. But, um, you know, you, you know, I drove to work the other day and went by three car accidents. Well, that never made it into the news because it's, it's a car accident. Right. So with uh, airplanes, you know, usually the ones you hear about are the ones that end up going into, you know, a neighborhood or, you know, having some other, or, you know, involves a celebrity. So, you know, they, they do crash somewhat frequently, but uh, not, uh, you know, nothing, you know, approaching, you know, car accidents. You know, when, when I was flying air cargo, you know, it was basically just me or me and one other person and, you know, an old airplane with, you know, a bunch of car parts or industrial equipment in the back. And, you know, um, during those two years, um, you know, I lost six friends that died in, 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 uh, accidents because of the equipment failure and, you know, crashed okay. and those never made it into the, the news, you know, cause it's just one airplane and one guy and, you know, crashed out in, in the mountains someplace in the middle of the night, yeah. you know, it so. is, it is, it's just a, it's a, aspect of society we just, i don't think we all understand really you, you know like that the idea that like you know six people you know in two years crashed in planes and people were just like oh okay because at the same time if they were driving a truck across country and fell asleep and drove the truck off a cliff it would be the same really reaction which is that's a shame and sure you know it's a personal tragedy but it, you know in the grand scheme of things we do expect some people to pass away from car accidents and plane crashes and everything it, it is really I don't know. It's interesting. It's a whole part of the world. I don't, I don't know that much about other than to say, I've always felt safe during air travel. I've never, you know, like, because it does make sense. Like if, you know, if passenger planes were dropping out of the sky, somebody would tell me about it. And so I, right, you know, yeah. I, I very, I very infrequently hear about anything like that. Um, 
Yeah, I never once I've never once gotten on a plane and thought like I hope this goes well. I've never had that. Yeah, do, do you know what I mean? Well, that's good. I, I guess I'm doing my job, yeah. right? <laughs> you keep them. Yeah. Well, I appreciate it. I do. Um, I want to thank you for coming on. We we hit an hour, but uh, but thanks so much for sharing, like you know, your story and and this whole concept of you know what goes on when if you're a pilot or hoping to be a pilot and you get type one. I hope it uh, it raises some awareness for you. And um, like I said, please keep in touch. Let me know how it's going. Yeah, absolutely. I, I really appreciate you having me on and, and, you know, getting the chance to talk with you. And I guess just, uh, you know, last parting words, you know, I just want to encourage everyone out there that is dealing with type one or even, you know, type two, just as you you know say all the time, you know, knowledge is power and just, you know, take that initiative to go out there and educate yourself because no one else is going to do it for you. You, you really just have to go out there and get as much knowledge as you can. And that's going to give you the best long-term result either for yourself or if it's, you know, parents dealing with, you know, kids with diabetes and so on, just get that knowledge and apply it. And, you know, I think that's going to be the, the best thing you can, can do and relieve some of that fear and, and frustration. Yeah. The worst thing that could happen to you is you sit back hoping someone's going to tell you and it, just, right. and it never happens. You really do have to be proactive. Um, something like this happens to your health you can't just go well this is what the guy said so it's what i did and it didn't work out but what am i gonna do he told me and right. you know and then let it go you, you you have to go get it well john thanks so much i appreciate you coming on absolutely have a great day okay thanks thank you john for coming on and sharing your experience thank you omnipod and dexcom for sponsoring the show please go to my omnipod.com forward slash juice box or dexcom.com forward slash juice box to find out more about those great products, you can also find links in your show notes at juiceboxpodcast.com. Don't forget to go see the video of Quincy on my blog at ardensday.com. I think there's like, it's right on the front page. Just scroll down, look for the koala bear. If you don't, if this is like two years later and you still want to see it, you know, go to the blog and then hit the search bar and type koala because I can't imagine there's going to be more than one post about a koala bear on my diabetes blog. Thank you guys so much for the ratings and reviews on iTunes. We're almost up to 200 ratings and almost up to 100 user reviews for the podcast, which is really fantastic. Thank you very much. Don't forget, this is the last thing. Don't forget, if you're enjoying the show, please share it with somebody else. You are the best chance I have of reaching a new audience member.